In my, uh, at our house, we play a game uh, just about every morning. We play a game every morning when our son gets up and he goes down for breakfast. We put him up in the high chair and we play a game called Ding. It's called Ding. And what the game has to do with is my wife, she knows that Bennett loves toast. And so she takes out the bread while Bennett's sitting in his high chair and he starts saying, Ding! And she starts putting some butter on it and he's saying, Ding! And she gets the toaster oven and lowers it and puts in the toast and turns the timer and Bennett goes, Ding! And all of a sudden, it starts to tick, 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 tick. The toaster oven begins to go on its timer and there's a faint ticking sound within which every five seconds Bennett is saying, Ding! Because he knows when the ding comes, he's going to get fed. When the ding comes, he is going to have his feast. Folks, It's Mother's Day today, and we have a psalm today that we're going to be looking at, a psalm that uses the imagery of mother with child. But ultimately, what this psalm is about, ultimately what we're going to learn today as a a church family, is we're going to learn to wait for the ding. We're going to learn to be humble and patient and quiet and calm in preparation for the ding. In preparation for that time of hope, of great feeding, of great feasting, of great nourishment. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. It's a very short psalm. And today, we're going to look at the idea of waiting patiently for God's blessing. Waiting patiently for God to give us the hope that we desire. Waiting patiently for the ding. When Martin Luther came across, Martin Luther, the great uh, Protestant uh, Reformation figure, the one who, who nailed the theses to the wall of the Catholic Church and said, we need to change this church. And he brought on the Protestant Reformation over 400 years ago. When he came across this psalm, this is what Martin Luther said about it. He said this, Oh, excuse me. Uh, I'm go- yeah, I'm going to slide two there. It said, it is one of the shortest of all psalms, but for me, its truth has taken the longest to learn. It's one of the shortest of all the psalms, but its truth has taken the longest to learn. And I skipped slide one. And how did I ever skip this slide? Let's go to slide one here. How did I ever skip this slide? I'm just not on my game today, alright? Be thou my vision. Forget the title. There's our title. A humble and quiet hope. Wait for the ding. Okay. Moving on. Martin Luther said, hey, this psalm is it's short, but man, I have taken forever to try and get it. It's taken me a long time to try and understand this psalm. This psalm is short and it is sweet. But its words are powerful and penetrating. And in the end, we're going to really see three things about this psalm. It's a three-step journey, if you will. And a three-step journey is this. First, 
David is going to speak about right thinking about oneself. Right thinking about oneself. And he's going to suggest that right thinking about oneself leads to a right disposition, a right temperance about oneself. Right thinking about oneself leads to right disposition, which also then leads to hope. Which leads to the ding. It leads to hope. This psalm is a three-step journey from thinking humbly about oneself to becoming content in one's disposition to finding hope and humility and quiet contentment. Let's take a look in our Bible. Psalm 131. Let's read it together. Psalm 131. He says, David says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's zero in on verse 1, shall we? As we approach verse 1, keep in mind, keep in mind our three-step journey that we're taking. The journey that begins with right thinking leads to right disposition, which leads to hope. And here in verse 1, we are going to see David's words to God and to the people of Israel about right thinking. And he says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters nor with things too profound for me. He says we are to regard ourselves with humility. We are to regard ourselves with humility. Now, I don't know if you're catching it, um, but admittedly here, David is writing or perhaps even singing, because these are psalms and and they were most often put to music, David is writing, singing to God about his humility. Now, we we might read verse 1 and think, how humble can he be if he's singing about how humble he is? But David is, is hardly patting himself on the back. He's hardly patting himself on the back. In fact, as we're soon going to see in verse 2, David the king, the king of Israel 3,000 years ago, is going to be comparing himself to a quiet and submissive weaned child. Far from patting himself on the back, David in all his kingly grandeur is going to be taking off those kingly robes and speaking about his humility. Speaking about his childlikeness, his meekness, his quiet submissiveness. Despite the prestige and the honor that David had as the king of Israel, he understood that all that he is and all that he had was due to the king of all creation, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. Now also keep in mind, these uh, these. Psalms are written to the nation of Israel. Okay? 
when David is penning these psalms, and, and David, the primary author of the book of Psalms, uh, most, most of the chapters are attributed to him, some of which are, are written in the superscription. You might notice it says, A Song of Ascents by David in your Bible. Before verse 1, it says, A Song of Ascents. In other words, this, this psalm was used in most likely in ascending to Jerusalem, or quite literally, ascending the, st- the temple steps for worship. And as David is writing these psalms, he's writing words and, and emotions and his feelings to God. But make no mistake, he's also writing for his people. He's writing for his people to hear these things coming from their king. Much like, uh, it's a crude example, but it's much like a State of the Union address here in the United States. Our leader, our national leader, sets aside a day to communicate with his nation, to talk to us about the condition of our nation, where we're headed, where we've been, how we're doing. The President of the United States, during the State of the Union, he intends to instill hope and wisdom and confidence. He's addressing the nation. David is addressing the nation inasmuch as he's speaking to God. I, I, I would imagine the nation of Israel are reading David's words and are thinking, wow, our king... Look what he's saying. The man who has everything. And look how he's describing himself. A man who is not prideful, but seeks humility. Thinks rightly about himself. And goes on to talk about how he's like a weaned child. David is in intimate relationship with God. And is having a deeply spiritual dialogue with him about what is truly important in his life. As David grows in the knowledge of God, he's recognizing that humility, meekness, even for the king of Israel, is indispensable for someone who desires to please God. It's indispensable. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. That is to say, my inner man, what what makes me me, is not proud or exalted. Nor are my eyes lofty. I don't look up. I don't think highly of myself. I don't look down on others because my eyes are lifted up. As one theologian put it, when we overestimate ourselves, we always end up underestimating other people. When we overestimate ourselves, we always end up underestimating other people. And let me just say that in my own experience, and I imagine many of you would agree with me, there is little more unattractive than pride. There is, there is little in life that is more unattractive in a person and more unbecoming of a person than a prideful person. Um, I know that's true of my life. Um, I, I think at times I struggle with pride and so I'm a little, probably uh, aware of it, maybe more so than some others. Uh, my wife could probably attest to that, you know. I, 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 I can struggle with pride. But I know, I know because at times I struggle with it, I know how ugly it is. And I know how unattractive it is. And I know, especially men, okay, we're, we're, it's Mother's Day, so men, I'm going to harp on you. Guys, um, we are disposed to pride. 
And it's, it's an ugly vice. Women are not nearly as disposed to pride as men are. And guys, we need to recognize that a prideful heart, a prideful man, that is really unbecoming of a man. And when I see a man that I admire, I see a man that, that I want to emulate in my life, I, I guarantee you that man is humble. In fact, I, don't, I, can, I can honestly say I do not admire any man who is prideful. I don't. I really appreciate a man who is humble. I gravitate to them. David says, Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me or too wonderful for me. Now, what does he mean here? Certainly, as the king, David is compelled to deal with matters of great importance. He's he's supposed to deal with great matters and profound decision-making, if you will. Is he suggesting that that we aren't to strive after these lofty goals or to set high standards for ourselves? Does he mean that we're to shoot for for a C average and not not the excellence of an A? No, that's that's not what he's saying here. In fact, the end of verse 1 is most likely given in reference to David's recognition of God's amazing act in creation and sustaining the universe. You see the word profound there. It's also used as the term wonderful throughout the Psalms. And take a look how it's used just a few Psalms later in Psalm 139. David says, O Lord, You have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is, get this, such knowledge is too wonderful. It's too profound for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. When David says in verse at the end of verse 1 that, that he's not seeking after great matters or things too profound for him, he's saying, I'm not going into the business of being God. I'm not even going to touch it. I don't even pretend to know how God, in all His omniscience and His omnipotence, And in His omnipresence everywhere, I don't understand how He's able to create and to sustain this universe. I am a humble man. I don't pretend to know these profound things. They're too wonderful for me. Too high. I cannot attain those things. I know how to think about myself, David says. I think rightly about myself. When I look upon God... I think rightly about myself. I recognize that I must be humble. I am worth nothing apart from God. A humble perspective. Verse 1. A humble perspective. Right thinking about ourselves leads to a right disposition about ourselves. Right thinking about ourselves leads to right disposition. Let's take a look at this disposition now that David attains in verse 2. He says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David says, In light of my humble understanding of myself, I have calmed and quieted my soul. 
The word calm there is the Hebrew word shavah. And it means to literally to level something. To make it level. To make it level. David says, far from exalting myself, far be it that I lift myself up. No, no, I'm going I'm to level myself. I'm going to plant myself firmly. Think rightly about myself. Recognize my place. And David speaks of the quieting of his soul. Literally, that he is, he is being silent before God in his disposition, in his demeanor, in his temperance as a result of considering his humility. And David is now going to go on to give a simile, an analogy. He's going to use the imagery of mother with child for, for our Mother's Day. Um, and he's going to say, look at this mother and child relationship and this is the, the, the child is an example of the disposition that I'm seeking. Now, many of you are looking at this verse. It says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And you're all thinking, I don't know any weaned child that is calm and quiet. What the heck is he talking about? Calm, quiet, and weaned? Do those go together? Well, apparently 3,000 years ago they did. Apparently 3,000 years ago when David was on the throne, uh, calmness, calmness, quietness, silence were attributes, were characteristics that described young, weaned children. And last I checked, I, I actually think this pattern continued for a few millennia. It probably continued until about the late 1960s, 1970s when children started to become the center of attention. When children started to become the center of the American home. Today, children are like gods in the home. A calm, quiet, submissive disposition is more apt to be found in the parent than it is the child. It is the parents who are quieting themselves before their children these days. Now, folks, uh, there's, there's a great... I'd I move on the, the rabbit trail just a moment. There's a great need in, in today's home for parents who put their children in proper perspective. There's a great, great need for this. Parents and grandparents... Grandparents, I know we like to spoil. And I know I, I, I will like to spoil someday my grandchildren if, if the Lord wills. But I'll tell you, how we treat our children has an effect on them for the rest of their life. How we raise them will largely contribute to whether they are a selfish and self-centered and demanding person, one who takes takes, takes, or one who is humble and quiet and calm. One who seeks to serve others and to love others. Um, I, know that, I know this need is real because of all the messages that I've preached, uh, of all the messages that I've, I've had in my time here at Coast in these couple years, do you know what the number one listened to message on our website was? 
the one message I did maybe last summer on parenting. That's the number one listened to sermon. Why? Because everyone recognizes this is a tremendous need in our culture today. Parenting well, parenting from a godly Christian perspective is greatly, greatly needed. And, and parents today, you know, we had our baby dedications. These parents, the Gutierrez's and the Meschuk's, they were saying in the vows that I commit to lovingly discipline my child when it's necessary. They're putting their children in proper perspective. They're not letting their children run their lives. They are remaining the parents. They are remaining in responsibility. And in David's day, he says, look, hey, the weaned children in my day, they were calm and they were quiet because they were properly raised. They were respectful. Now, what does he mean by this? You know, we, he's, he's actually contrasting this. He's contrasting a weaned child from an infant. Now, we don't see the, the term infant there, but that's what he's doing. David is saying, it's a weaned child that we're seeking, not like the one that isn't weaned. Now, here is an unweaned child, okay? Nice and calm. It's Bennett right there. All right, there's the, I'm showing off my son today. And that's why he's, he's calm. Right? That's why he's calm. Is it not? When is an infant calm? When they're full. When is an infant not calm? Yeah, next slide. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's not Bennett. <laughs> uh, that's another kid in the church. No. No. Some internet, poor, poor internet kid there. I don't know. That's when they're not calm. Right? You know, it, it, it's easy with infants. They cry, they're hungry. They're not crying, they're full. The, you know, when we think, think about for just a moment, for just a moment, let's, let's take that off the screen. I don't want you to have to stare at that. Think about an infant for who isn't weaned. Think about that for a moment. A baby, not weaned yet, still on his mother's milk. They look all cute and cuddly, but let's move past that for a moment. And you know what? What are these infants like? They expect everything on demand. They, their moms exist to indulge their every whim. The mom is, is to cater to this infant when he or she cries. The infant is the center of the universe. No one wants to hear that baby screaming and wailing. When that infant needs to be fed or changed or wants to be held or comforted, he or she cries. They cry and wail until they get what they want. They say, me, me, me. The world revolves around me. Infants largely are, are, are selfish from birth. Now look at verse 2. David is saying, I'm contrasting that unweaned infant, that loud, selfish, obnoxious behavior of an infant with that of a child who has been weaned from his mother's milk. The weaned child no longer cries when he is hungry. No, their mother has begun to gently discipline them and teach them the virtue of patience. They begin to use their words and politely ask their mother for food when they're hungry. They don't scream and wail just because mom hasn't given them a cracker on demand. They exhibit a measure of self-control, calmness, 
quietness. Folks, if this doesn't describe our unweaned children today, it should. It should. Our, excuse me, our weaned children today, it should. If, though, if, if, if what David is saying does not describe our children who have been weaned, it should. It did 3,000 years ago. It did for millennia afterwards. It's only in the last 50 years that it doesn't describe children of that age. What do we need weaning from? What is David speaking about? You know what we need weaning from? Selfish desires. We who are adults, selfish desires when we exalt ourselves above God or others. We need to wean ourselves off the notion that the world revolves around us. And how do we do that? It begins with right thinking. Thinking humbly about ourselves. Knowing who God is and where we are in relationship to Him. Right thinking leads to right disposition and temperance. We will no longer cry like the infant when we don't have our needs met, but instead, like a weaned child, we will calmly and quietly wait for blessing. And so David in humility is learning to calm, calmly and quietly wait for the Lord to provide for him and to give him hope. And hope is exactly what he finds. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3, he says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David entreats the people of Israel. Now he's speaking directly to them. He's saying, Israel, my people, as your king, think rightly about yourself. Let that right thinking, that humility, calm and quiet your soul. Let your disposition be of of quiet demeanor. And have hope in the God of Israel. Put your confidence in Him. Hope as described by the American Heritage Dictionary, is a wish or desire accompanied by confident expectation of its fulfillment. Here's the irony. Here's the irony. What is the proud man seeking? He is seeking wishes and desires. Right? The proud man is seeking to exalt himself, to bring upon himself wishes and the desires of his heart. And so he's proudfully hoping in himself and trusting his own skill and his own might and his own power. David says that's that's the wrong way to hope. Your, your, Your wishes, your desires, the things that you truly need are still going to come to you. But that the hope, the object of your hope is not in yourself. It needs to be in God. It needs to be in God. Most of the world hopes in themselves. In pride they wish or desire for things. But David says, let the object of your hope be the Lord. And He will give you what you truly need. He will satisfy you completely, genuinely, in a real sense. Not with things that are fleeting. What kind of hope does God offer? I want to say three things. There are many things. Many things, folks. But I just want to break it down to three. Three things that God offers to those who wait upon Him. Who are humble who are quiet in their soul, and who hope in Him. Three things that you can expect from God. Number one, you can expect peace from God. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. God, You keep those 
in perfect peace. Those whose minds, who think rightly about themselves, is stayed on you. Whose minds are stayed on you because He trusts in you. That's my, uh, that's my grandmother's favorite verse. I love that verse. Anytime I see it in my Bible, I think of her. This was her life verse. There's a second thing that you can expect from God, and that is deliverance. Deliverance. Oftentimes, when, when we are humble, we, we, we get taken advantage of. When we're humble and meek and quiet, and our disposition is one that is calm, others take advantage of us. And that's what happened in the book of Lamentations. Uh, excuse me, that's the, the people of Israel. They had trials. They had the Babylonians coming and ravaging their land. And Jeremiah the prophet says this in response to this war-torn Israel nation. He says, though through the Lord, excuse me, though the Lord's mercies, excuse me, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions they fail not; they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That is the deliverance of the Lord. A pagan nation had decimated Israel. And Jeremiah says, wait. Wait patiently. God will deliver. Wait patiently. God will deliver. Notice the themes in that verse and how they correspond to our psalm today. And finally, the final thing that we will receive from God if we hope in Him, if we keep that humble and right manner about ourselves, is we'll be rewarded. I love, I love this quote by Doug Goins. Look what, look what this uh, theologian says. He says, The calm and quieted soul is one that has come to terms with itself. This is someone who knows who they are in God's sight, and the result is rest, quiet, contentment, and even self-discipline. Jesus talked about that lifestyle in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The blessing Jesus was describing is a calm confidence and a quiet strength that will qualify us for kingdom responsibility here on earth. That is really well said. Jesus spoke about the meek. And He says, hey, the meek, the humble... They'll be lifted up. The proud will be laid low. The humble will be exalted. The meek one will inherit. They will gain great reward in the kingdom of God. At the beginning of my message today, I said we were looking at a three-step process, right? Right thinking about ourselves. Humility. When we do that, it leads to a right disposition a proper godly temperance, a calmness and a quietness in our soul. And when we have that, it leads to hope. Because a person who has thought rightly and has become calm and quiet recognizes that their hope alone is in God. The peace, the deliverance, the reward that they seek is only found in God. David followed this threefold pattern, but there's another who followed it to perfection. Folks, I want to leave you with this imagery and notice the thematic development of Philippians 2, 5-12. through 12. Notice, the, notice the themes. Paul says, your attitude, our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who being in the very nature of God, did not consider. He didn't think wrongly. He thought rightly about himself. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He became, his disposition became a humble one, a calm one, a quiet one. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, in light of those things, God exalted Him up to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From right, right thinking to a disposition that is calm and quiet, submissive, servant-minded. Hope. Exaltation. Oh, it came. It came. That exaltation came. It took some time. But that's what was truly, truly satisfying. Jesus' exaltation is what has given us the opportunity to even live this kind of life. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had an inner sense of humility that led him to take upon himself the disposition of a servant. And in that humility and in that servanthood, he went so far as to die on the cross for your sins and mine, the sins of the whole world. And God exalted him up. And so, folks, the journey we see in Psalm 131, as we've read today, it's not just David's journey, it was completely and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I urge you today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all, this, all these things that I've told you today about thinking rightly and having the right disposition and going on to hope, it's meaningless without faith in Jesus Christ. It's meaningless without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Believing in Him for everlasting life. If you've never done that, today's the day. I urge, urge you to believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And He will give it to you. Please talk with me after the service if you have some questions about that. Folks, pride, selfishness, those kinds of things, that's not what we're about. That's not what's going to truly satisfy in our life. Humble yourself. Think rightly about yourself. Be meek. Wait for God's hope, peace, deliverance, and reward. As you sit in the high chair of life, don't cry and moan and wail for others to... Meet your every demand and satisfy your every selfish desire. Instead, wait for the ding. Wait for the ding. Be patient. Be humble. And wait for it because God is going to lift up those who do so. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to wait for the ding. We know that times of refreshment, times of nourishment are coming. And Lord, help us to be patient, humble, calm, and quiet in expectation of Your blessing upon us. Father, I pray for the families that are here today, for the mothers. Thank You, Lord, for the example of a humble and quiet mother. We thank You, Lord, that our moms are women of of great character, not of pride. We can learn from them, Lord, today. So, Father, help us to learn from our mothers to be quiet, to be humble, to be calm, and to find hope 
in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.